just read from Galatians, the end of chapter 3, just through into a few verses in chapter 4. So uh, I'm beginning, Galatians chapter 3, I'm beginning at verse 26. Okay. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, so that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, I'm going to preach on ooh, interesting verses this morning. Some might think they sound quite controversial, but I hope to explain a little bit about them and why they were written. Uh, so we're in Colossians. Um, I probably won't be on the screen because I didn't tell Steve uh, that I was preaching on a different set of verses. But so we're in Colossians again. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3 and verse 17, I think. So if you listen... Uh, I'm going to read just into chapter four. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so that's where we've got to in Colossians. And the first thing I want to say this morning is extremely important, and it's this. To understand what the Apostle Paul is doing in those verses we have to put ourselves into the world of the first century. I cannot emphasize that enough. To understand what Paul is doing here in these verses, we have to put ourselves back in the first century world in which Paul lived and the Colossians lived, who he wrote this letter to. If we don't do that, I think we will probably misunderstand what Paul is doing here. And we will certainly miss how revolutionary it was in his day. These verses that I've just read were radically subversive when they were written. They were progressive. They were shocking. They were unheard of. They were new. 
They were a dramatic challenge to the accepted social structures and social norms and assumptions that existed back then in the first century. Feathers would have really been ruffled by what Paul wrote there. They might sound a bit backward to our modern ears, but they were a giant and controversial leap forward in their day. Because in these verses, Paul was saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ challenged first century social structures. It showed them up to be harmful, unjust, and bad for the world. And he explains how the the news of Jesus completely transforms the hierarchies that had existed back then with all their social inequalities, all their exploitative use of power. These verses show how the news of Jesus Christ pulls humanity forward out of injustice and exploitation and inequality. And it takes us, Jesus takes us into unity and fairness and, and love for one another. That, what he said here, Paul, was, was unheard of in his day. Now, in these verses, Paul addresses uh, the three basic structures of first century Greco-Roman society in which they lived. Uh, And and it revolved, the structure of all society in those days revolved around three relationships. Uh, The husband to the wife, that was the first one. Then secondly, the father to their children. And then thirdly, the master to the slave. Those those three relationships were, were absolutely set in stone pillars of first century household life. Uh, Famous philosophers like Aristotle and Philo wrote about them. They're so well documented, these three relationships, that uh, historians of of the first century now just call them the household code of the first century. Uh, Society said that the household was structured in this way with this threefold pair, husband to wife, father to child, master to slave. Now, importantly, usually the husband, father, master in these three relationships was the same person, okay? One individual, one male individual, who they called in Latin the paterfamilias. And he had control of everything. He was the sovereign ruler in the household, and he had all the rights. Whereas if you were the woman, the child, or the slave in the first century, you basically had no rights at all. Uh, You were the property of the husband, father, master person. Uh, As I say, it was often the same individual. So a wife belonged, first century law said, a wife belonged to her husband. She had no legal rights if he mistreated her. As a woman, she was assumed in the first century to be a lesser being, of less worth, less intelligence, less honour than a man. Aristotle put it like this, the male is by nature, he said, superior and the female inferior. Women were not allowed to take part in in the public life of society. Uh, They were considered unreliable and untrustworthy. There was even a well-known prayer in which men thanked God that they were not women. (laughs) Uh, One commentator said the, the idea that men and women might be equal partners in a marriage simply did not exist in that world. Children as well. Children were the property of their father. They too, children, had no legal rights if they were mistreated. Society thought that children should be sort of kept out of the way. We see that in the Gospels, and Jesus challenged that convention. 
Uh, it's well documented that in first century Roman society, when a child was born, they were placed at the man's feet for him to decide whether to keep the child or abandon them. And a father at any point in first century Roman world, at any point, a father could le legally choose to sell their child off as a slave. It was, it was legal for them to do that. And that leads us to slaves, finally. Slaves were the very lowest of all in the world. They were barely considered human, really, more like animals or objects. Aristotle, again, put it like this. The usefulness of slaves diverges little from that of animals. He described slaves as animate articles of property. Slaves were the property of their master, uh, a, a piece of property that just happened to live and move about. Slaves had absolutely no legal rights at all. They could be mistreated however the master might wish. They had nothing, slaves, because they were legally considered to be nothing. Now, those were the cultural assumptions of the day in the first century when this letter was written. To say that it was a man's world back then is an understatement. It was a very unjust, exploitative, cruel kind of world for most people. And while there were, of course, there were exceptions, you know, not all men were cruel. Some husbands did love their wives, fathers who did care for their children. The fact was, nevertheless, to be a woman, a child or a slave in the first century was by definition to be a lesser being in society. Right. And then Jesus comes along and he says things like the least are the greatest in the kingdom of God. He says the last will be first. He says the meek, the merciful, the persecuted are blessed in God's kingdom because they are children of God and inheritors of the world. He spoke about humility and compassion, about love for, for our enemies. He welcomed, even gave priority sometimes to women, to children, to outcasts. He ate together with all kinds of people that society looked down on and said he should look down on as well. But Jesus loved them and ate with them. He healed them. He washed their feet. He stood up for them sometimes and routinely condemned the unjust power structures that exploited those people. Jesus crossed all the cultural and racial boundaries that people had put up. And, and though Jesus was described as God's king, Jesus said that he had come to the world to be a servant. It's the same word as a slave. And then Jesus gave his life for us all on the cross, for the rich and the poor, for slave and free, for young and old, Jew and Gentile, man and woman alike. And as such, anyone who followed this Jesus could no longer see humanity the same way they once had done. So the question for the Apostle Paul now, he's a follower of Jesus in the first century. And as he writes to these Christians living in Colossae, living in that world I described earlier, with all its cultural assumptions, the question is this, how does the gospel, the news of Jesus, affect that situation? What should those relationships of husband, wife, father to child, master to servant, what should they look like in a Christian home in the, in the first century in the Middle East? And what he said was the sort of thing that would have made people spit their tea out across the table because they were so shocked when paul said elsewhere in galatians 3 
that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no slave or free, because we're all one in Christ Jesus. That, that wasn't just a nice sort of group hug thing. It was subversive, direct. It, was, it shattered and challenged those deeply embedded, deeply unjust structures of first century society. And these verses in Colossians 3 were just as shocking. Now, one thing Paul could, could not have done, because it would have achieved absolutely nothing, Paul couldn't just say to the Colossians, well, throw out all those structures, don't be part of them anymore because they're wrong. That's true. But to a first century slave, child or woman, that's about as useful as a chocolate teapot. It's not going to help them tomorrow morning. They were living within those structures. Those structures were enshrined in Roman law in which they lived. They had no ability, the slave, the woman, the child, to just sort of say, oh, I don't agree with that and walk off from it and refuse them. So instead, what Paul does do is he gets inside these structures and he begins to criticize and challenge them and transform them from within. So verse 18, he says, wives be subject to your husbands. Now, there would have been nothing surprising about that to first century people. But then he adds this in a way that is fitting in the Lord. Now, by saying that, Paul is very subtly taking the wife's ownership away from the husband, as society said, onto Jesus Christ, which is what the gospel says. He's saying to the wife, look, Christ is your Lord. Live in a way that's fitting of him, not anyone else's whim or fancy. And in fact, by the end of this passage, every single person that is addressed in this passage, by the end of it is told, all of them are told, Jesus Christ is the, is the one, the only one, who really has authority as Lord in their lives. Nobody else does. Ultimately, Jesus alone is the one who has authority over everybody's life and relationships. And that's not what society said, remember. Now, back to this, this bit, verses 18 and 19, the really shocking thing comes next, because Paul then, he said, to, said that to the wife, but then he says to the husband, who society, remember, said the husband can do whatever he pleases. But Paul says very different, something that none of the first century household codes even contemplated saying. Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, to us modern people, you know, we might, that might sound obvious to us, you know, because to us, marriage is supposed to be about love and everyone is supposed to be respected as human beings. That was not the case in the first century. It, it, will, it was not assumed in the first century that a man should love his wife. Some did, thankfully, of course. But society said, actually, it didn't really matter. He could treat her however he wanted. But Paul says that, in Jesus, you know, as Christians, things are very different for us. In this new world of the Christian gospel, a husband, Paul says, must love his wife and he must treat her well. His rights over his wife are, are changed by Paul into his responsibility and duty towards his wife to love her and care for her. Because as verse 14 has already said, love is the virtue above all others for the Christian. It is a thing that binds everything together because it characterizes God and his people. That's how God's treated us with love. Now, so this first bit was a giant leap forward. It was a cry from out of nowhere for most people, uh, a cry for the well-being of women and, the, and the, the good treatment of women. 
It was pr promoting love to the center of the husband-wife relationship, something that was very different then, but I think be because of Christianity, we consider normal now. And actually in the Bible, that love is always at the center of our relationships. So then Paul goes on to the next relationship, father and child. Children, obey your parents or fathers in everything, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Now, again, nothing too surprising about the first bit. But Paul, again, he takes the focus of, for the child onto, away from the father to Jesus, uh, as is fitting, um, at, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. The child isn't there, in other words. Paul is saying, as a child, you're not there to just please your parent to do whatever they want with you. You're actually, your life is there to please the Lord. You're here for Jesus. And then the really shocking bit in verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Again, the household codes of Greco-Roman society never said anything like that to a father. Society said it was all about the father's rights over their child. Society said a father could treat a child however they wished. But Paul says a father has a responsibility to encourage their child. He says the father must not embitter their child because their child will lose heart otherwise. Now, again, this is completely different to the prevailing view of the father-child relationship in the first century world. It's very hard for us 2,000 years on to appreciate how revolutionary this was. The message of Jesus here in this, when this letter was written was it was pulling society forward out of this idea of the all-powerful male who could do whatever they pleased within the household. And Jesus, the gospel, is taking us away from that to a more biblical view of all mankind being created in God's image, of equal worth. This is where Genesis begins in the Bible and created to love God and to love one another as ourselves. The, the biblical view is of our responsibility towards one another. And the biblical view of children, of course, you know, right at the beginning of the Bible, children are the original, the first blessing that God gives to humankind. They must be considered children very, very precious. And then Paul gets to the third relationship, the master and slave. And I think it's here that we really see what Paul is doing, because Paul's description of the, the slave and the master is more obviously subversive than anything else he's already said. It's more clearly challenging the cultural norms of his day. Uh, it, it's here that we really do see it. Paul is deliberately challenging the status quo of first century society. Because in these verses, Paul deliberately undermines what society said about the slave and their master. If people hadn't raised their eyebrows yet and hadn't spat their tea out yet, they would now. Okay, slaves, he says, obey your earthly masters and everything. Okay, nothing strange there to the first century mind. Although his description of their masters as earthly would have been a little bit controversial already because the word earthly in this letter has a rather negative connotation. You know, it signifies things that are not of God. So he calls them earthly masters. This is, he's already hinting yeah, I'm not too sure or happy with this master-slave relationship, your earthly master. But then he adds this. Do it, you know, so slaves obey your earthly masters and everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you, 
to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, do you see what he's saying there? Paul is telling the slave that it is not his human master that really matters. It's his true master in heaven. It's Jesus, his Lord. It's not about the human, what the human master sees. It's about what Christ sees. It's not about the human master's favor. It's about Jesus's favor. It's not actually, he's saying, the human master you're really responsible to. It's your Lord in heaven, Jesus. Because it's not the, the implication, of course, is it's not the earthly master who owns you at all. Jesus is your Lord. Now that already changes the whole master-slave relationship. Slave masters would not have liked this. First century writers, uh, in the, writers in the first century frequently encourage slave owners to instill a sense of fear into their slaves. The slave should fear and reverence his human master, they would say. But Paul says, no, they actually should revere Christ. So again, Paul is going into that master-slave relationship and he's changing it. He's undermining, really, what society said about slaves and their masters. The power over a slave is being taken away from that human being, from his hands, and it's been put into Christ's hands. Now, the next verse is even clearer. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. That's going for the juggler in the first century. Society said the man who is a master owns the slave. They're his property. The slave's very life and everything they did was the right and the property of that man in charge, the master. Paul says to the slave, no, you're not living and working for that man. You're living and working for God. He's your master, not the other guy. As he puts it in verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. By calling slaves in the first century to serve the Lord Christ, Paul is taking ownership away from the earthly master. He's challenging the first century, century assumptions that slaves are the property of their human masters. I, imagine a master in the first century, a slave owner, reading this letter to their slaves. The, the master would be thinking as they read it to their slaves, they'd be thinking, so you're suggesting these slaves are not really mine. They belong to Jesus, not to me. Exactly. That's exactly Paul's point. No human being owns another human being. And you can imagine what new dignity this would have given to the slave and to his work. Society said the slave was nothing, scum. His work was the work of a, of a nobody. Paul says, no, your life and your work is, is worth much more than that. See yourself and your work as being done for God. He carries on. He says to the slave, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Uh, guess what? In the first century society, slaves were disqualified from ever receiving an inheritance. Slaves could not be heirs. That was the point of, Paul uses that illustration in Galatians, where we read it earlier in Galatians 4, also in Romans 8. Slaves cannot be heirs. They can't inherit anything. But Paul says, you know what? To the slave, he says, you know what? You get to share in the biggest inheritance of all, the one that God gives. God considers you a slave, an heir of all his blessings. 
just think you've got to try and think what's this doing sociologically in the first century it is it is taking the slave and raising him up putting putting upon the slave new value new dignity new worth as a human being it was revolutionary no one at all spoke of slaves like this in the first century but the gospel of jesus christ did speak of that the gospel doesn't care if society says you're worthless because of your social position jesus says that's nonsense you're an heir of god in christ can you imagine how encouraging that would have been on a monday morning for the slave their whole life they've been told you're worthless barely human even and god says that is not true everything i have god says is yours you're an heir of all things the gospel was was injecting new value and new worth and new position upon their lives, giving them a new dignity that society had never given them. But what about the next day, you know, for the slave? The slave gets up the next day and he's mistreated, he's beaten perhaps, and he's got absolutely, legally, he has absolutely no right to respond to that. Well, I think that's probably why Paul puts in verse 25. Anyone who does, does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism or partiality. In other words, look, I think Paul's saying to the slave there, look, society might favor the master and despise the slave. It might say that he can treat you as badly as he wants because you're just a slave. But God does not work like that. God shows no favoritism like that. Even if society ignores your mistreatment, God will not ignore it. So take comfort God is just and right. Wrongdoing will be dealt with. Again, what a comfort that would have been for the slave to know that in a world where no one was on your side, God would be. And then to top it all off, perhaps the most shocking, subversive, progressive thing of all in these verses is chapter four, verse one. This verse effectively blew the whole first, first century system apart completely because it challenged the perception of the one at the top. Remember that all-powerful master. Paul says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I like to say, he's kind of saying you're not as big as you think you are. It's shocking enough that he's telling masters to treat their slaves in a fair and just way. Society said slaves had, had no rights to any justice or fair treatment. Paul says, yes, you should give your slaves justice. You should treat them right. They're as much human beings as you are, he's effectively saying, with the same rights, the same dignities, the same worth as you. You know, words like progressive, forward thinking, I don't think get even close to this. This was throwing out and rewriting the whole book on human society of the first century. This was political and social dynamite. This was the good news of Jesus telling a completely new story of what humanity is. It's wonderful. I think it's a real shame, you know, when these, we look at these verses and they just start debates about male headship or whether Paul should have really condemned slavery. You know, those debates miss the point because we don't put ourselves back in the first century world. These are a leap forward. You need to realize, actually, as a Westerner, as a modern Westerner, if you as a modern Westerner today have a view of shared human dignity, 
that, that everybody as a human being has as equal worth and rights. If you believe that as a, as a Westerner today, that came out of Christianity. It came out of this Christian phenomenon that started in the first century and challenged everything. It came as a result of Jesus. And the centuries that followed came as a result of the Christians who looked at who Jesus is and what he'd said and realized they needed to work to abolish slavery, to uphold the rights of women and children and others who are oppressed in the world. And as followers of Jesus, I believe it is our place today to keep that ball rolling in our world, a world where, although we've made a lot of progress, sadly, slavery is still an issue in the world. Neglect of women's rights is still an issue. The rights of children and many others too are neglected. I haven't actually even mentioned the biggest thing he says of all. When he says to the master, remember that you have a master in heaven. What he's saying there is the master is actually a slave. Uh, that turned it completely upside down for this all-powerful male. The role is reversed. Society said that one guy, husband, father, master, is master of everyone under his authority. Paul says, actually, you're a slave because <laughs> your master is Christ. So for any first century Christian who was in that position, the master, that's a real challenge. Now that you're a Christian, how's it going to be? Think about the way you see yourself, Paul is saying, and the way you see others within your household. Realize that actually you're not the master, Jesus is. You've got to think about that. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, he said, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise their authority over others, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even I, the son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many.